Good morning. Happy Sabbath. It is the Sabbath after Easter. And as we begin to think about life in the light of the risen Lamb, it's exciting to continue talking about God's capacity for renewal and restoration, which is what our lesson is about. Sure, we'll talk about the flood, which is one of those stories in the Bible we all know. But I think as we go into the text, you'll realize that again, it's God offering an opportunity for restoration, regeneration, and rebirth. Before we jump into it, though, we've got some questions and some comments that we'd like to engage in as we think about our lesson last week, which, as you might remember, deals with Cain and Abel and that tragic story. Now, I have a little bit of holy envy because this week we got a wonderful little message from the beautiful Caribbean island of St. Lucia or St. Lucille or St. Lucia, depending on what part of the world you're on. And this was a message that was really poignant from Jean Annette Bryce. So Jean, you asked, what room do we see for in the generational curse theory for an individual's free will? It's a great question. And it's a question that encompasses, I think, this debate that we've long had between God's foreknowledge and God's providence and our capacity for freedom. But I think in the context of our conversation last week, as we talked about this idea of these generational curses, uh, we can definitely open up a space for the interplay of freedom. There is also, as you all may know, a conversation between nurture and nature. And I and Joey, I think, are in the camp where we believe that environment and this generational curse, if you will, can be broken with intentional thought. It is the intentional application of our freedom, which allows us to say, these sins that have befallen my family, this trauma that is accosted my loved one stops with me. But that requires an intentional move on our part. It is an intentional move that God invites us generation upon generation to make as we ask him to breathe a new story into our histories of trauma. And so, we believe that free will actually trumps these ideas of generational curse as long as we are willing and able to invite God into those spaces. So, Gene, thank you for your question. We actually hope that you stay warm in the beautiful island of St. Lucille in the Caribbean. Joey, is there a question that you got that was interesting and it caused you to invest a bit in thinking? Yeah, so the one that I, I got was from Christian, who lives almost, I guess, worlds away from um, Gene, uh, weather-wise at least. He's all the way from Illinois. And uh, Christian, I, I, I hear that it was very, very cold last week. I was reading up that there's something called a Greenland block. I don't know if you've heard about that. A high-pressure system over Greenland that always pushes cold weather your way. So that's maybe that's why Midwest, the Midwest is so cold all the time. I remember my winters at Andrews were not fun. So <laughs> my heart goes out to you. But you asked a, a really uh, poignant question. Um, you asked two, but I'm going to point out the first one, which is uh, my question that came from looking. My question that came from looking at Cain's con condition is, and what touch what touched the discussion is whether sinning is natural. 
Looking at Cain, who had probably not heard of any lies or seen anyone murder someone else, how did the first instinct be? Uh, how was the first instinct to kill his brother, and not to just do something else to relieve his pain aside from murdering his brother? If sin is or is not natural, what about the need or longing for God and doing good? Is it natural? Because I've heard that humans have a deep longing for God that they may not have peace unless God fills that longing. I don't know who said that. So your question is really appropriate. So is it natural for Cain? Was it natural for Cain to want to kill his brother? Where did that instinct come from? And then what about our desire for God? Um, well, I think I think the first thing is that it depends on what you say by natural, what you mean by natural. I don't think God, it was God's intention for us to have those broken, to have that brokenness that leads us to sin. However, with sin came a brokenness, a brokenness in our connection with God. Mm -hmm. We talked about this last week, a connection with each other, a connection with, uh, with nature, with our environment, with life itself, there was that brokenness. And it's continued to corrupt and it corrupts, sin seems to corrupt so quickly that one generation later, you already have thoughts and even the action of murder mm -hmm. happening when, you know, there really wasn't death before that. So that's, I mean, it just shows how destructive sin is. But we do have a longing for God as well that I, I believe that God puts within us as an act of grace. Um, we see that in Genesis 3.15 when he's pronouncing these curses when God is pronouncing these curses on, on the serpent and then on the woman and then the man, he says in verse 15, and I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman between your offspring and hers. He will crush your heel head and you will strike his heel. And if you remember from our discussion last week, that is what some people have talked about called proto-evangelism, looking forward to the time when Jesus would come to destroy sin and um, re-establish re our relationship with God, begin this healing process again. But even from the beginning, he's talking about placing that enmity, that 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 desire to not sin. So then we're, we're left with this war within us that Paul talks about in the book of mm -hmm. Romans where we want to want to not sin, but we really want to sin. And, and it creates this real difficult tension within us. But I love the way that um, Paul ends that chapter. He, he asks, you know, with this enmity, with this battle happening within my heart, um, what, what is going to be the result of that? The question he asks in Romans chapter 7 Romans chapter 7 says, um, verse 24, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And his reply in verse 25, his answer is, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Mm. And then he goes into that beautiful passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Amen. Jesus. So yes, there is a battle within us for good and for evil, um, but that is ultimately won because of the grace of God. Wow, that was a beautiful exposition on systematic theology, Joey. And Gene, you might have better weather, but definitely Christian has better pizza. So <laughs> from Chicago to St. Lucia and all those points in the middle, thank you so much to our viewers, uh, you actually, your questions keep pushing us and prodding us forward, and we love to interact with you. So as always, keep your questions, your comments, your concerns, 
uh, coming. We love, love, love to answer those. As we said before, we're going to start uh, one of the stories that we know the best uh, in the Bible. It's a story that deals with the tragedy, but it also deals with this, this idea of restoration and renewal. And so before we jump into Genesis 6, can I invite you to pray with me? God, we come to you and we simply ask that amidst the chaos that is life in this world, you might provide an ark, a ship of safety, where we might experience and encounter you. And as we look for the presence of your spirit in our midst, may it fill us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Genesis chapter 6, let's get into it. Um, the story begins in verse 1 with God simply giving a rationale for the flood. Notice chapter 6, verse 1, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and, the da and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of human were beautiful, and they married, and they any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and so afterward, and the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old men of renown, and the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil at all times, and the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. Mm. Wow, Joey, what is going on in the first six verses of Genesis 6, where we start with this introduction into how life has progressed now from Adam to Noah, and the really interesting piece for me, and we'll maybe talk about the first five verses in a second, but the really interesting piece for me is verse 6, which says, that the Lord regretted mm. that he had made human beings. And the reason for that is that now their inclination has become only to evil all the time. That is the way that scripture describes the state of the world by Noah's time. I mean, it really paints a pessimistic viewpoint of what happens to humanity because of sin, right? I mean, you go from virtual, you, you go from perfection to just evil everywhere, pervasive everywhere in just several generations. I mean, there is some fast forward here. We're going through many generations to get to this point. But at this point, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but it's very close to Adam being alive or Adam may have just mm -hmm. passed away. So it's not that far off from remembering what the world was like before sin. And yet the writer of scripture says that um, the heart, the thoughts of human heart was only evil all the time. Mm. It's just very, very sad, mm -hmm. isn't it? I don't know. Yeah, it's it, it's it's extremely sad. And I think you're right. These are people who are have grown up. I think as the story of the fall becomes kind of this story that is passed on from generation to generation, and yet it seems like the response to this story has been now to have your inclination to evil all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, I know what you're thinking. Did they just 
fly by the first five chap verses. Um, we haven't. Uh, there's a lot of debate on the first five verses, Joey, of the book of uh, the sixth chapter. Uh, there's some interpretations that uh, I think we just need to lay before you and then have you uh, decide which way you want to go. Because I think the story is not about uh, the Nephilim or what brings about the flood, but rather what God, again, what God's response is to sin. So with that as a preamble, I'll simply go through uh, the usual interpretations that are given as we talk about the first five verses. Uh, first interpretation is that the daughters, uh, that the daughters of man and the sons of God are two lines. So you have the line of Seth, um, and that is what is meant by the daughters of uh, the sons of God, I should say. And then you have Cain's line, um, and uh, those are what we would call the daughters of Man and so when these two lines commingle, uh, God is deeply, deeply disturbed by this. There's another interpretation that says that what is actually happening is that you have kind of this third lineage that we don't know where it came from. Um, that they are a an, another group of people that serve as judges, and that it is these people that are closer to God. And so when they begin intermingling, you have giants. And then there's a third view, and the third view comes uh, to us from a lot of the pseudo-epigraphical um, material in the Bible, some of that intertestamental literature that we talk about sometimes, where it says that the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, are actually what uh, the intertestamental literature calls the watchers, and so these are people or uh, semi-divine uh, semi beings that are wa watching the women uh, that are human, and then they intermingle and marry. Um, and so these are typically the three interpretations that are given on this text. But I think what's important to note, regardless of who you think the sons of God and the daughters of man are, is that God defines uh, an order to creation, right, Joey? Um, the idea in the book of Genesis, at least in the first five chapters, is that every single uh, thing, every single species it intermingles with its own species. And so there's this very clearly defined order. So regardless of what you think is going on with the sons of God and the daughters of man, it's uh, what is evident is that two, two groups of people that shouldn't be intermingling are intermingling, and this uh, brings catastrophic results. Yeah, I think you said it very well. Really, regardless of where you land, and there, like you said, there's a variety in scholarship, there's a variety of opinions, there's been a lot of debate, a lot of papers who've been written about this. But the, the bottom line emphasis is the corruption of humanity, mm -hmm. right? That there is, a, and that's really the emphasis. And it's just a an example that he puts in there as an example of the corruption of humanity that has happened because of sin. And so really the emphasis is that verse that you, you that we, we, we read at the end, um, verse six, that oh, verse five and six, that the Lord saw how wicked, how great the wickedness of hum the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. So that really is the emphasis, the point of emphasis here. But I, I really, that, that, that word that you started with, the regretted, right? Mm -hmm. Or sorry that he, mm -hmm. he, he made, I mean, does that mean that God experiences regret? Does he, 
did he not know that this is what mm. was going to happen? And then, and then, and then, and then now he's surprised by the sinfulness mm. of humanity mm. and regrets that he ever made them. Yeah. Would he, if he could go back in time, would he have not made humanity? How, how, how would you answer that? Joey, see, we were trying to get away with uh, not talking about the sons of God and the daughters of man and this regret piece, because those are, those are the two issues in the chapter that really have produced in, in a copious amount of scholarship, as you've mentioned. Uh, this idea of God regretting, uh, there's two primary, uh, again, there's two primary positions that uh, people take. Mm. The one position is that God knows everything that it is possible to know. And we have on our own campus a one of the primary proponents of this process approach to uh, God's knowledge uh, and to omniscience, uh, Dr. Rick Rice, who teaches and has been teaching at the School of Religion, who actually believes that God knows everything that it is possible to know. But uh, the act of creating free sentient beings is an is a act of self-limitation. So God limits uh, his knowledge of what decisions we're going to make uh, because God values above anything else freedom. Mm. And so that is a position, I think, that with uh, process theologians has become very popular. The other position is that God actually knows, and that when Scripture says regret, uh, in, the li in light of, of God, God experiences human emotions, but he, but he experiences them in a different way than we experience mm -hmm. them. So whereas you and I might experience anger that leads then to acting out of rage and uh, committing violence, God experience, experiences anger, but it's a different type of anger. Mm -hmm. In the same way uh, proponents would say, God experiences regret. God knew exactly what was going to happen, and yet he still created because God values relationship. And so the regret that God is experiencing is a, a regret different than what you and I would experience when we say, man, I just bought these pair of pants and they don't fit me. I'm going to return them to the mm -hmm. store. Um, it's actually holy regret. And so these are when we're talking about how what God mm -hmm. knows and how God experiences things. These are, I think, the two primary positions that uh, people debate about. Wow, that's really well said. So if, with that second one, um, it's almost like we're anthropologizing God, we're, we're taking God and attributing him attributing mm -hmm. to him human emotions because we have no other frame of reference than human emotions so we say that well god experienced regret um but it's not the same way that humans Correct. experience regret because we are limited in our perspective a lot more limited in our perspective than god correct is. and i think the one thing that these two positions have in common is they actually talk about the limitation mm. that God undergoes out of God's grace, out of God's mercy. Yeah. Um, so the process uh, position that Rick advocates for says, well, God limits himself because God wants to create something that is not God. And mm. that itself is a limiting uh, act. The other position that you're mentioning that you're mentioning with anthropomorphizing God's self, language it's language is a limited tool to talk about mm. a limitless being. So God says, I want you to say something meaningful about me. Yeah. And so I am going to allow you to use this tool that is limited 
i.e. language, in order to describe who I am. But make no mistake about it, the way I experience reality is completely different than the way you experience reality. Mm. So both of the positions actually agree on this idea of God, the most powerful being in the universe, God, the, the one who loves perfectly and who loves imperfect freedom, as Emil Brunner would say, limiting God's self for our benefit. Mm. So in either of those, um, those scenarios, either the process scenario or the fact that God um, experiences emotions differently than us, um, would it leave the door open to him saying, well, I, I regret in a way that I wish I didn't make humans and if I could do it over again, then humans would not be created. Mm. It seems that at, at that point, and that I think is a really poignant question that you ask, and so we have to go to the text mm -hmm. to provide an answer for that question. And I think the answer to that question, and this is why I think when God is saying, uh, uh, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Mm. This idea in the original language, right, has to do with deep existential sorrow. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I'm sure that um, all of us, people watching at home and you and I have experienced moments of deep existential sorrow. Mm -hmm. um, whether and, and sometimes I think that those moments are linked to the people whom we love the most. Yeah. It is ultimately the people who we love the most, the people who we allow ourselves to be vulnerable with and who we have the most intimate contact with that hurt us the most mm. because it, it, intimacy is ultimately taking a risk. And so I think you and I um, have, have used language like this, like I shouldn't have done X or Y or Z, yeah. but that is speaking simply about this existential sorrow that we're feeling because we have been completely intimate and completely vulnerable with someone mm. that sometimes has weaponized that vulnerability and that yeah. intimacy. And so I think that again is, uh, is akin to what God is experiencing at this mm. moment. God is allowing himself to be completely vulnerable and intimate mm. with a creation that weaponizes that vulnerability and that intimacy. But even in the midst of the angst and the sorrow, mm. God provides a life raft, a literal life raft, yeah. in order to preserve not only human beings, but the whole of creation. Yeah, that's, oh, that's so beautiful how you describe that, that God's willingness to become vulnerable. I mean, that's just mind-blowing to me that the God of the universe, the God who created the universe, this all-knowing, all-powerful God, um, whether it's process knowing or, <laughs> or all knowing, this, this God is willing to become vulnerable to humans. And as the psalmist says, what, are, what is man mm. that you would be mindful of mm -hmm. him, right? Like we're, we're smaller than the ants in the, in the context of, of the vastness of the universe. And yet God is willing to go through that angst for us. Like he cares enough to hurt when we hurt or when we sin and we, when we do destructive things instead of saying that, you know, I don't care about you. And I think, I think that's, that's exa exactly what you're talking about when you say go back to this text. When we see God hurting, it shows that God cares. Mm -hmm. Because if God didn't care, if God was completely apathetic to us at this point and saying, yeah, I wish I hadn't made them, I'll just destroy them. He could have. He could have just wiped the slate clean, wiped all of creation 
clean and and start all over. And yet we see him go to extraordinary lengths mm. to try to preserve humanity, not just humanity, but all of creation, like mm -hmm. you talked about, trying to preserve it and recreate it and start over mm -hmm. so that there can be another chance. God goes to that length. So uh, maybe that God didn't didn't regret like we we would say that he didn't want creation mm. to have ever happened because he tries so hard to preserve it. And I think that that language uh, notwithstanding and even dealing with the limitations that language has, Joey, um, I think one of the things that is most amazing about the God of the Hebrew scriptures is its radical difference mm -hmm. from all the other gods. So we think, right, about Greece and Rome as being kind of the apex of human intellect. Um, we get our justice system from the Romans, we get philosophy and medicine and mathematics, um, at least to some degree from, from the Greeks, but we didn't take their theology. Hmm. Because in the Greek world, that's yeah. ex this apathy is exactly how God would have acted. The mm -hmm. Greeks believed that emotion was a bad thing. And so you needed to free and exercise emotion. And so they believed in this God that was completely apathetic, that mm -hmm. was completely unmoved by the plight of human beings and by the mistakes of human beings. Mm -hmm. The God of the Hebrew Bible is a God, as uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel says, it's, he's a God of pathos. Mm -hmm. He's a passionate God. And if you read the the overarching story of scripture, it had to be a God of pathos. Wow. It is God's passion then that leads to God's incarnation and God's sacrifice. Without this God of pathos that's, that regrets and whose heart is troubled, we don't have Calvary. Mm -hmm. And so again, very early on, you have this, in, these, this idea that God, this God, this type of God, limited as language is, is going to be different than all the other gods because this is a passionate God. Wow, I love that. And we see that passion exemplified in the life of Jesus, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's him, you know, flipping over tables with a whip in mm -hmm. his hand or him um, uh, uh, gathering children to himself or weeping in front of his friend's tomb, we see the emotions in Jesus, mm -hmm. in, in God incarnated. So how does this um, God of pathos, how does he respond to sin? We see in here, I, I love how the, um, the writer of the Sabbath School Quarterly talked about this, this, um, this tension between uh, the word for regret, right? Mm -hmm. The Hebrew word for regret and the Hebrew word for Noah's name, mm -hmm. right? That this, this dual idea of regret, feeling sorry. So there's this judgment aspect, but then there's also Noah means comfort, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this, he brings in comfort. So he not only brings in judgment, but he also brings in mercy. Mm -hmm. And that's the tension that we see throughout scripture, especially the Old Testament, this tension between justice and mercy. And in God, somehow, those two concepts marry, they kiss, they come together. Mm, that's beautifully said. And then, so you have this idea of God saying, I regret, and it's not just human beings, it's all of the created order. And then, you remember, we have verses and we have punctuation. The Hebrew has none of that. Yeah. It's just, a, you're just reading a continual line. Mm. And in that continuity, you have this regret this almost divine anger, wow. and immediately you have Noah. 
And mm-hmm. I think the quarterly did a masterful job of pointing out that idea of comfort. Mm-hmm. So in our Bible, we kind of say pause, period, next verse, yeah. but in the original, it's continuous. Mm-hmm. And so you say, I regret that I have made it, made them comfort, mm-hmm. but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Wow. And what I find really interesting is that there is no rationale, at least up to this point. And remember, all we have in front of us is the text, and we're trying to read it as it would have been read or heard in its original context. And so all we have is this idea of this this name, Comfort, who has found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and it hasn't delineated what Noah has done in order to find favor in the eyes of the Lord, right? It's almost like God's committed to finding someone that will continue his plan for a relationship that is based and originated Mm. in trust. And uh, we're going to see some really interesting connections between uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and then the story in the flood. Wow. I love that, that God is committed to finding someone um, that, that that he can bring comfort through it kind of reminds me of the story of Lot. I mean, Lot was far from being mm-hmm. perfect. All the stories that follow Lot, just like the stories that follow Noah, just show how how broken of a man he was. And yet he, he's, he looks all throughout Sodom and Gomorrah and he's the only one that possibly that he could pull out mm-hmm. of that, that wreckage. And um, it seems that's the same thing with Noah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and what I find interesting is... The author in verse six, in chapter six, is simply giving you a description, right, of mm-hmm. what the state of the world is. Now, right after that, we're going to see what who Noah is. Mm-hmm. And by the way, this is the only time in the Old Testament where uh, the construction here in verse nine, Noah was a righteous man. That word Sadiq, mm-hmm. which is where we get our word Sadiqah from, righteousness, which is a huge concept, not only for the Old Testament, but it's going to make its way into Pauline theology. That concept, to be a Sadiq mm-hmm. and associated with an actual person, Noah is the only one that that's used with wow. throughout the Old Testament. So there's something special mm-hmm. about Noah. Which is why a lot of, uh, a lot of Hebrew... Uh, students and a lot of uh, people that are doing uh, interpretation in in rabbinic schools are asking themselves the question, why didn't Noah do some more work in in terms of intercession? Mm. You mentioned the Lot story, Mm -hmm. and the Lot story is preceded, as you know, by Abraham. Mm -hmm. Um, And Abraham goes into this really amazing intercessory role for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then later on, Uh, Moses will do the same thing, right? The pillars of Jewish faith, uh, Moses will come in and intercede uh, when Yahweh says, my my anger burns brightly against these people. Let away, let, let come away from me, so that it might, so that I might consume them. And Noah says, No, no, no. If you do this, Lord, the people will say that you took these people into the desert to kill them. Yeah. Noah doesn't do any of this, and I'm sure there's a reason for it. Um, Do you have any ideas on what that might have been? I don't know, Um, because it seems like the patterns that follow Noah, like you said, that there is almost a desire. Um, One of Kim talks about how um, that God may be baiting Moses to Mm -hmm. do this, like he's trying to encourage, he's, he's, 
almost faking this mm-hmm. anger so that Moses will respond mm-hmm. with compassion and empathy for the people. Because if Noah, if, if sorry, if Moses had just gone down as angry as he was, he would have probably done much right. worse than what God was intending to do. And so this is God's way of almost doing reverse psychology on him and trying to get Moses to take the Israelite side, to empathize on, on their behalf and move him to a better place mentally. So it's almost like God is trying to encourage him to do that. Was God trying to do the same thing to Noah? Does he want Noah to do that? I don't know. What would you That's would you a say? really good point. And I love the fact that you brought in this idea of kind of God working and developing Moses's patience. Mm. I was thinking about that as I was reading this text, actually. And then I saw this really interesting piece here. It says, again, it's a really clean description of what is going on in, in the world. It says, now the earth was corrupt and God saw in, in God's sight and it was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am going to destroy them, both them and the earth, period. In the Noah, in the Moses story, there's kind of this idea of goading, as as you're mentioning, to try and develop Moses's faithfulness. In the Abraham story, God, there's the door is left ajar. Let us go into the cities and see if their wickedness is the way it is. And then Abraham, by the way, the Jews believed, and still uh, people doing rabbinic interpretation of this text, believe that the reason why Noah doesn't intercede is because there are not, there don't exist 10 righteous people on the earth. Mm. And so the Jews kind of have in their mind that Abraham story, and they say, the the kind of cutoff for mm. God to, to decide is 10 people, and we don't have that. But what I think is really interesting is that at this moment, God feels that Noah is ready to go forth and do whatever job God has entrusted them to do without debate, without discussion. And I think that's the difference. I think Whereas with Moses, you have this period of kind of negotiation. Mm. And with Abraham, it's uh, the same. It's almost as God as if God is saying, hey, I'm going to leave the door open for you because I want you to engage in intercession. Mm. Moses already knows. Mm. And so uh, I think that's the beauty of the way in which Moses is, is described. Uh, he is a righteous man and he walks faithfully with God and he is blameless among the people. And that spiritual maturity is then borne out in the fact that Moses says, okay, God, I am now going to build an ark and I'm going to, and if we read Peter uh, later on in the New Testament, Peter follows this line of thinking that is pretty present in in the Jewish mind that Noah does this work of intercession for 120 years, even when he knows it is destined to fail. And so that conversation of goading and trying to convince doesn't happen because Noah is at a place of spiritual maturity where he already knows what's required of him, and so he will do it. Hence the, the term that he was righteous. Correct. Yeah, so that Noah was already at a position that God didn't need to grow him more in order to accomplish this task. And we see that by the fact that he does intercede on behalf of humans. He's trying to convince them to follow them for 120 years. And even though it's it's a futile endeavor. Yeah. Wow. You know, that's interesting because um, I I was reading uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs and he Mm. makes 
a similar point that Noah was a righteous man. But he he goes a little bit down on Noah saying that even though he was a righteous man, he wasn't much of a leader. Mm. And so he says that because he, he says, um, and so he makes the a, a conclusion that righteous being a righteous person is necessary to be a great leader, but not all righteous people are great leaders, mm-hmm. right? And his point is that he couldn't get anybody to follow him. To be a great leader, somebody has to follow mm-hmm. you. And so after 120 years of preaching or after whatever period it was of preaching, he couldn't get people to follow mm-hmm. him. So he, he he discounts him as a leader, which I, I, I found kind of a fascinating insight. I mean, um, who knows, right? That's that's just one man's interpretation of what's happening here in scripture. But it, it does... It does beg the question that um, is it enough for us to be righteous in and of ourselves or is there a need for us um, to go out and try to encourage other people to grow in, in their relationship with God? Because as you pointed out, even with Noah, even though he was unsuccessful, at least he tried mm-hmm. and he tried for a long period of time, right? As long as he possibly could. Is there, is there an element of uh, following God that is not just, well, as long as me and my own, my family and I are good, well, the rest of the world can burn, yeah. right? Is yeah. there an element of that in scripture? Wow, that's such a good question. I actually, I chuckled when you mentioned Rabbi Sachs's book because I was reading that and my Christian bias showed right away. I was like... Linda had to come into the room because I was like, no! <laughs> and she's like, what's going on? And I was like, no! Because I think, and we've talked about this a bit, I yeah. think that when you, when your leadership or your spiritual maturity or your capacity to live out God's calling for your life is measured by numbers, mm. you get into a, a space that is yeah. really unhealthy. That's I mean, true. By I that, by that, thought process, then we could say, well, Jesus wasn't that great of a leader. I mean, the apostles were awesome because Peter got 3,000 of them and then Paul got the whole uh, Roman world. But Jesus, Jesus didn't get get anyone. I mean, there were some women, uh, which sometimes the Bible writers leave out. There were some women that stuck with them to the end. But by and large, he didn't convince anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet we, I, I think we would not dare and say that Jesus was not a righteous and a fantastically transformative leader. Uh, So I think the question isn't how many people are following me. The question is how authentic am I being to the vision that God has called me to be? Mm -hmm. And in the light of any obstacle, how committed am I to living out that vision in my life? And as long as I'm doing that, then how submitted, after I'm committed to this vision, then how submitted am I to God if the numbers don't come? Mm -hmm. Because the, the the Bible is clear. We're not in the numbers business. That's God. Mm-hmm. We're simply in the following our call and, and being committed to that call. And I think that's the beauty of the story, Joey. Mm-hmm. There you have Noah. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've preached sermons, I know you have, where if he, where you hear crickets and you've invested your blood, sweat, and tears into the sermon, and at the end you hear, you hear crickets, and you then start doubting mm. that this is the message that God has gifted you. And when I read the story, and again, as I was reading it this week, I thought to myself, this man preached for 120 years. Yeah. 
and didn't get one person converted, but mm. he was smart enough to submit that to the Lord. And so he never, he didn't close the door. Mm. He built the ark and said, come, the door is open mm. as long as, as come and there's food and safety and security for you. And the one that closed the, the door, the one that determined the numbers or lack thereof mm -hmm. was God. And so I think we need to be committed to the vision that God has given for our lives. And then we need to submit that vision to God when sometimes the numbers don't follow. Wow. Wow. That's so powerful. Um, and friends, you just got to hear um, Miguel just take apart the argument of one of the greatest minds of our time. That was powerful. Yeah, I, I agree. Like if we get obsessed with the numbers, it leads us to a very, very dangerous space. And um, it, it reminds me of that, that saying that God calls us to faithfulness and not to success, mm -hmm. right? He doesn't call us to be successful people. He calls us to be faithful people. And so there really is this idea that as long as we are following God's path for us, we may not always see the numbers that we expect. We may not always see the results that we expect, but God God is calling us to be faithful anyway. And man, we see that over time and time again with the followers of God throughout scripture, right? Jeremiah, the weeping mm -hmm. prophet, man, he was called to a very, very discouraging yeah. ministry too, to preach to a nation that he knew would eventually end up in an exile and still follow the, the nation and mm -hmm. preach to them after the exile happened mm -hmm. and, and to stay with the remnant and then follow them to Egypt. I mean, it's just, it's a very discouraging ministry. Like, And yet that's the reality. Sometimes God calls us to ministries that are a little bit discouraging because we don't achieve the success that we so desperately want to to experience and there's a beauty and almost a stoic heroism in that mm. right that you know the end already you mm. know that you're not going to win at least win as we defined as we define winning and yet you still go forth and you live faithfully there is some there is something deeply heroic about that quest where you say i know that this is this is going to lead to death, like Jesus told his disciples. Hey, this path is going to lead to a cross and to death, and yet I'm still gonna I'm still gonna tread upon it. There's mm -hmm. there's something heroic about a life lived in faithfulness, and the and I think the commitment to that type of life, to the Jesus way which is so countercultural mm -hmm. uh, to a society that says, we're going to judge you on the basis of your successes. Mm -hmm. And um, and God says, no, I'm going to judge you on the basis, as you're mentioning, of your faithfulness. Mm -hmm. So the water starts to come. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because the the Hebrew mindset was was really... In truth, it was almost this poetic way of looking at the world, right, Joe? You have the world and this sphere, and on top of the sphere or this vault, you have water, and below you have water. And then it's almost like the, and Scripture says, the fountains of the deep break open. Mm -hmm. And so you have water coming from above and water coming from below, kind of engulfing the whole world. And it returns us to a state of chaos, mm -hmm. to this primeval, primeval state that we read about all the way back in Genesis 1. Yeah. The picture uh, in this great experiment of creating something that is not God seems to be a failure. Mm -hmm. Which got me to thinking, 
How do we deal with failure in life after we've poured in and we've put in our blood, our sweat, our tears, our vision, our prayer, our commitment to this plan that we think is going to be a good plan. It's going to be God breathed. And then it seems like after some time, maybe months, maybe days, maybe even years, you're in the same exact place that you started. Or even a worse place. Or even a worse place. Yeah. <laughs> you started, right. Yeah, I mean... Um, I don't know how we should do it, but we see how God does it. He, he, he did literally breathe into this world. He created a perfect world and then it just fell apart. And so he sort of hits the reset button, right? I mean, the language, as you, you talked about, this language is a reflection of the language of creation. I think the quarterly did a great job of describing that and showing how this is connection, this connection to creation language. Um, like we've talked about before, John Pauline talks, um, mentions that scripture always uses the language of the past to describe the present. Mm -hmm. So it's using the language of creation to describe what is basically the undoing of mm -hmm. creation, right? Um, um, one of my professors at the seminary, Dr. Randy Yonker, talks about this as the undoing mm -hmm. of creation, that creation is reset mm -hmm. back to, what, like you said, back to the void, back to the chaos, of, of the, back to the state of disorder. But it doesn't end there, mm. right? Because there is a turning point and order is restored. Mm -hmm. So even though God undoes creation, he also redoes creation right. and reforms it back. And so I think it just gives us hope that no matter how bad things get, when we're following God, there is always a reset button, mm -hmm. but there's also a redo button, right? Mm. That God will get us back. Get, God will re, rebuild from the ashes of, of that failure, of that disaster. There is that rebuilding. And we see that time and time again throughout scripture. That reset, we, I mean, the book of Judges is just that pattern oh, over yeah. and time over and again, again yeah. right? That reset, reset, reset that happens over and over again. So God is willing to continue to work with mm -hmm. us and there's always hope for a redo. Yeah, that's I think and and that's I think what what jumps out from the page, right? You have yes this language of kind of the deconstruction of creation, but mm. then you have this language of recreation mm. as as you were mentioning the quarterly talks about. The first thing that God does then is separates the sea from the land. Mm. And then you know that creation is happening because the language is the same. The, yeah. the waters begin to dry up and then vegetation comes. And mm. so you see the, the, the promise of the olive, uh, just like you see in the creation story. And then um, the filling of the air in the sea with birds and fish, and you see the dove mm. popping in. And so you, you have kind of this creation in reverse and then creation reset or creation repeated. Only that this time there's a couple different things, mm. which I think bolster your point that what God has in store for us after our failures is greater than what we could dream about. So you have uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, when uh, Lamech talks about Noah, and he actually names Noah, and he says, uh, your name will be Noah, and you shall reverse the curse. Mm. Um, and we all know what curse he's talking about. He's talking about this curse in the land, and this Adam, this sad, sad, sad story of Adam and Eve in creation. And then you, you have the language, the the ark lands on our on, on this mount. And mm. I know that we have people looking and expeditions looking on Mount Ararat for, for the ark. We're missing the point, folks. 
The word Ararat means, uh, the word Yarar, which means curse, or Arara, which means curse, and Yara, which means to twist. And so when the, when the ark lands and the people emerge, much like in day six of creation, you now hear it. It, mm. it, it lands on the place where the curse is now reversed. Wow. And, ha and so then after that, yeah. you have this beautiful covenant. Mm. How, how do these curses get reversed? How does God reset? How does God restore? He does so through the creation of a covenant. Mm -hmm. And so he says, here's my sign in the sky, which yeah. is a rainbow. But in the original language, it's a bow. Mm. And the bow is inverted. So if you can picture a rainbow, think about the bow. And if you can picture uh, arrows going into, the, uh, going into the bow and being shot, those arrows, if you're shooting them from a, from a rainbow, would go upwards. And what God is saying is, because of this experience, I no longer will declare war on the earth. Uh, the curse has been reversed. And now peace um, between Mike, between me, and the descendants of humankind. And that ultimate expression of peace, as we know, comes in the person and the body of Jesus. Wow. I love that imagery of the rainbow being that inverted bow. And so the arrows are no longer pointed at humanity as it would be if God was waging war on humanity. They're pointed up, pointed at God. And, you know, if you take that that um, metaphor a little bit stronger, it, he, he does take the bullet. He does mm. take the arrow, mm. right? Ultimately, that's what he does in order to restore that connection again. He turns it on himself and says, you no longer have to suffer the full consequences of sin, that full separation, that that being away from God for all of eternity, because I will step in and I'll take the arrow, mm. I'll take the shot. And you have that language right there, right? The first thing that Noah does, mm. he gets it. Yeah. He he offers sacrifice and it's it's the sacrifice that the type of sacrifice he offers is the one that is consumed completely and so you you begin to hear some people ask me why did you do your graduate studies in old testament mm -hmm. uh, when it's such a problematic and violent and patriarchal and yada 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 uh, piece of the bible and i say because every story points you to christ and mm -hmm. so here i think you've beautifully pointed out uh, that you have hints of the incarnation um, and, and hints of God's patience. And we're going to learn about God's patience mm. next week because this man that seems to be righteous above all others kind of messes up. Yeah. And so we'll talk about that next time. But until then, Joey, can you pray us out? Yes. Good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for being a God that shows that despite our mistakes, despite the times that we fail, despite the brokenness that we all carry within us, that you always make a way. You always make a way. You go to extreme lengths to make a way back to you, to restore that relationship again. And so we ask that you help us to not give up on you because you don't ever give up on us. Amen. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember that God will never give up on you. Remember that you are now in a covenantal relationship with Christ, one that prioritizes peace. May God give you a happy Sabbath, and we'll see you next week.